0: Hey there friends, welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast where we try to provide blue jeans theology, that is, theology for everyday life. Thanks again for uh, tuning in to the show, and man, it's crazy times right now in the world, and I don't know where you're listening from, but uh, here I am in the United States, and everything's beginning to shut down and slow down in view of this whole coronavirus pandemic, and so Um, Wherever you're at, I pray you will remember this one central biblical truth, and that's this, that God is on his throne, God uh, is never surprised, God is never startled, and the world is never beyond God's control. So wherever you're at in the midst of all the craziness, may you remember that God is on his throne, he knows what's going on, he's in charge, and he can take care of you and all his people. All right, let's jump into the topic for today. We have a lot of material to cover. Um, We are in a little series where I'm interacting with just some of the things that you, our listeners, have said, this is some of the stuff I struggle with when I read the Bible, or this is some of the things that make the Bible challenging or frustrating to me. And so in last week's episode, we talked specifically just about the general strangeness and foreignness of the Bible, that reading the Bible is like entering a foreign world. What I want to deal with today is really a challenging bit of the biblical story, something that uh, really raises a lot of questions for a lot of people. And so let's just jump right in because we've got so much to cover. I want to make sure we have time to deal with it all. Uh, And to begin, let me just read a few quotes from a couple of the people who commented on this On social media, when I asked the question, what are some things that are hard for you about the Bible, someone said, man, I'm reading through the book of Ezekiel, and I just get depressed by reading all of the destructions of cities and peoples and all of that, and just some of the destruction and violence there. And more specifically, and this brings us to what I want to really deal with today, more specifically, someone said, The challenge of just the Old Testament God, the New Testament God. I get the stuff you learn in Bible school, the history, the Israel, Judah, all of that. But at the same time, God says about the Canaanites, wipe them out. And then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, give them your coat. How do those two fit together, right? And so specifically what I want to deal with then on this episode of the show is that command to wipe out the Canaanites, wipe them out. How can the God who says, love your enemies, pray for those who curse you, bless those, give them your coat, how can he also be the same God who in uh, the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament says, now you're going to go into the land I promised to give to your fathers and I want you to destroy them all, wipe them all out. How does that go together? And before we deal with the details of the Canaanite situation and God's command to wipe them out, just note that even in the Old Testament law itself, you have all sorts of instructions for doing good to people, for showing love to people. Love your neighbor. Uh, There are instructions for caring for the foreigner who lives among you and making sure you're taking care of the widow and the fatherless. There is commands as down to earth as leave the excess in your field for the needy, including the foreigner. And this indicates something very, very important about God and God's character, that God's character is really the same in both Testaments. His instructions in both testaments is largely the same. And sometimes we miss that because there seems to be, and in a lot of ways there is, more destruction in the Old Testament. But God's character really remains the same. So let me just, before we deal with the details of the Canaanite situation and God's command to wipe them off, let me just point out some things about God's character in both testaments, all right? Um and that is primarily this, that you God is a God of both justice and love, and love and justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we have an emphasis on God's love, just like we do in the New Testament. For example, Exodus chapter 34, central text to the biblical story. Exodus 34 is where God really introduces himself very clearly and specifically and shows himself to Moses. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7 records God's words to Moses when he shows himself to him. And it's the most quoted passage of the Bible by the Bible itself. In that regard, it sets the tone for our full understanding of God. So let me read it to you. It says this, God, describing himself to Moses, says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to a thousand generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And true, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, Don't have time to explore that whole text, but that emphasis on God being a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that gets repeated over and over again in the Old Testament itself. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And this just shows up over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You read the prophets and God is described as a God who has loved his people with an everlasting love. Um, and so, there is plenty of emphasis in the Old Testament on God's love. And at the same time, there's plenty of emphasis in the New Testament on God's justice and even on God's wrath, God's just repayment on people for sin. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for hell is used 12 times. 11 of those come from the lips of Jesus, or... Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says this about God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Or again, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, after describing just some of the wrong things that mankind does, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 6, it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You read the book of Revelation, and the word wrath shows up over and over and over again because God is pouring out his wrath on mankind. And wrath doesn't mean like a willy nilly, capricious, unpredictable, you know, bad mood sort of God. Wrath means just repayment for wrongdoing. And so in both Testaments, Um, We have an emphasis on love and justice, justice and love. And so when we come to the command for God to wipe out the Canaanites, this isn't a case of God being angry and mean in the Old Testament, but being nice and loving and kind in the New Testament. That's just a false kind of dichotomy, a false division between the two Testaments. God is the same in both places. He is a God of love and a God of justice. Okay, with that context in mind then, Let's look specifically at God's command to the Israelites as they're going into the promised land to wipe out all the Canaanites. How do we understand that? And how does that fit with the total biblical story and this character of God who's a God of love and justice? And I want to approach that by just giving kind of a handful of observations. Man, there's so much we could say about this. Uh, There's some really great books that have a lot of detail on this. I'll mention two, one by Christopher Wright called called The God I Don't Understand, and the other by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? I'll put a link to both of those in the notes below if you want to check those out. A lot of really good material in both these books about some of the difficult things of biblical theology and Christian faith. So you can check both those out if you want to. Now let's start with just some historical observations about God's command to destroy and wipe out the Canaanites, all right? Uh, And first, let's just talk about this whole idea of destroying, and we'll put it in the context even of destroying and driving out. Uh, In the book of Joshua, when the conquest is well underway, Joshua writes this in Joshua chapter 10, verse 40. It says this, Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And that just sounds so all inclusive, so all like comprehensive. And it's like, really? Like, God just uh, God commanded him to wipe out everybody. And then Joshua and the Israelites went and did that. It just destroyed everybody, left nothing who breathed, right? And yet, the very same texts in uh, these passages, particularly in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where God commanded, "You're going to go into the land. You need to, you know, uh, eliminate them, drive the people out, destroy all the people before you." Those very same texts, those very same passages, also said. Um, that they're to treat the foreigner who lives among them well and offer protections for them once you enter the land. As you go into them, you're supposed to treat them well. You're supposed to treat them nice. In fact, one example, Leviticus 19.33, God says, now when a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So on one hand, you have texts Um, recording how they destroyed everybody. You have texts in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus saying you've you've got to wipe them out. And then you have texts saying, um, now those foreigners who end up living in your land and living among you, treat them well. Love them because you were once a foreigner yourself. Wait, hold on. How does that work? Um, How does destroying them all and treating them well, destroying them all and still having foreigners living among you, how does that even work? I thought you were supposed to get rid of them all. Well, here's one really really important thing the ancient readers totally understood what was going on in those texts and that's this that destroy doesn't mean what you think it means destroy doesn't mean destroy doesn't mean get rid of doesn't mean annihilate doesn't mean you know just completely obliterate everything in fact joshua's very own words in joshua 10 you keep reading joshua and into judges and it's very clear that there are, there are Canaanites, there are foreigners who are left behind. There are specific uh, people groups with among the Canaanites, the Amalekites, for example, who uh, were supposedly destroyed. And then a few chapters later, it's like, uh, can I have permission to remove them or push them out or expel them from the land? And so it's like, wait a second, hold on, what's going on? Well, destroy doesn't mean what you think it means. And the reason for that is because of ancient Near Eastern war idioms, that there was a convention for writing about war in the ancient Near East that is just, this they're just using the language of their day to communicate um, what what is going on. And the original readers and the original audience knew that. They understood that when you conquered an enemy, you wrote about it this way. You destroyed them. You obliterated them. You got rid of them. You eliminated them. And yet, what really happened on the ground was different than what it sounds like to modern ears. We have something similar, obviously not in this kind of context, but when we talk about, say, a sporting event and we say, man, we just blew the other team out. We just obliterated them. Man, we just wiped them out, right? Like, what are we saying? Well, we're not literally saying we blew them out or we obliterated them. We know that that language in that context means something else. It means we thoroughly trounced them and we defeated them, right? Well, that's really what this language means in the context of the ancient Near East, is that Joshua, when he writes this, doesn't mean that that, uh, every single living person is dead, even though that's what it sounds like. It's just the, the ancient Near Eastern war idioms that means they... Thoroughly defeated the Canaanites in those regions. That's what it means. And so there still are foreigners left. In fact, um, uh, not everyone was destroyed. And God actually said, more often than not, God's command wasn't to destroy them. God's command was to drive them out of the land, to expel them from the land. And so, for example, Exodus chapter 23, verses 28 through 30 says, I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hittites, Canaanites, and the Hivites before you. I will, I will not drive them out before you in a single year so that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And that's the vision that God has set before his people is... I'm going to drive them out little by little, not even in a single year, but we're going to take our time. We'll drive them out little by little so that the land doesn't become desolate. And that's um, exactly what happened. And so when you get to the book of Judges, there's still um, Canaanites, Hittites, and Hivites that the Israelites are living among. And it becomes a real problem for the Israelites. And the Israelites actually break faith with God, start worshiping the foreign gods, which was God's greatest concern and greatest fear and why he wanted to remove them from the land in the first place. And and that's what happened. And so then God eventually says, you know what? I'm changing my tactics. I'm I'm not going to drive them out from you. I'm going to let them be there to test your loyalty to me. And so Judges chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, let me just read it for you. It says this, I will uh, no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left behind when he died. Notice that. Joshua said that he destroyed them all. But Judges notes, Joshua left some behind. Right. Ancient Near Eastern War idioms. In order to test Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Man, there's so much more we could say there, but we're gonna run out of time real quick here. But you gotta hear that is that destroy doesn't mean destroy. Um, That that's ancient Near Eastern war customs. God was going to drive out the remnant of those peoples afterwards, all right? So part of it is not everything and everybody was destroyed. One really important consideration when we talk historical considerations. Another part of that, when we talk about historical observations, is that God's primary concern was not with eth- ethnicity but with idolatry. And the goal wasn't therefore to destroy um, the Canaanite people. The goal was more to destroy Canaanite culture because of their idolatry. Um, And so this is not so much ethnic cleansing as it is uh, removing idolatry. And so Here's this description of what they're supposed to do, God's real concern. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, when God's giving us instructions and he's saying, you've got to get rid of these people. We've got to drive them out. We've got to destroy them and we've got to remove them from your land or else, here's what will happen, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Notice that God's going to remove Israel from the land, not get rid of them, not annihilate them, remove them from the land. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars. You shall smash their sacred pillars. You shall hew down their asherine poles. You shall burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so the, the goal was not to destroy all the Canaanite peoples. The goal was to destroy Canaanite culture because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And in fact, in the story of the conquest of the land, the very first Canaanite we meet is Rahab. And she becomes a convert who gets saved from the destruction. And so we realize that it's possible. At the very outset of the story, it's possible for Canaanites to be saved. And Rahab is one of them because she puts her faith in Yahweh and rejects her pagan past. And in fact, we get some inkling that this was actually uh, somewhat regularly practiced, that offers of peace were given to some of these cities, but were rejected. Joshua chapter 11, verse 19 says, There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon, All the others they took in battle. And so apparently there was the opportunity to make peace. And the people didn't do that except for this one group of people. All right. And so that's really important to realize is God is more interested in destroying the culture than just all the peoples. And in fact, the the records of destruction, of battle appear to be, the evidence suggests that we're dealing with military strongholds where most of the action takes place. Jericho, Ai, Hazer, and cities like that, were, they were military forts. They weren't just cities full of non-combatants. They were military forts that were hunkered down. And that's why, like for example, Jericho, there was, it was a small little military fort that Israel could march around multiple times in one day before Um, eventually taking the city. And so we're dealing with military forts and soldiers living there that now are entering into combat with Israel. And those are what are being leveled. And notice, Israel is not supposed to take any wealth from those cities. This isn't about Israel getting rich at the Canaanites' expense. It's saying, no, we are eliminating this. We are taking your land. We're driving you out of the land um, because of your wickedness. And so that's really, really important to notice as we reflect on this wiping out as well. Another historical observation to notice here is just the uniqueness of this event. That this event is never, ever given as a universal command. It's never called on either in the Old Testament or the New as the pattern for how God's people are to deal with their enemies. It's never restated or repeated for the Israelite nation in the Old Testament. It is a unique event limited to one generation, one time in history. And in fact, um, God basically tells Israel, and if you're not faithful to me and you go after other gods, I'm going to do to you what, what I'm doing to them through you. Now, so this isn't about, you know, Israel being better. This isn't about uh, Israel being, you know, the righteous, great, powerful nation. and, And then these poor, helpless nations. Uh, you know, being destroyed at Israel's hands. In fact, if you read the text, Israel's, you know, they're kind of afraid of doing this because they recognize these nations are greater, more powerful than them. And God says, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you do this. This is a limited event to one period in Israelite history, not commanded or repeated for the rest of Israelite history. Yes, there is other wars over the course of the Old Testament. The Old Testament covers about a thousand years and. War is pretty much inevitable in that length of a time period, um, and it's one of the reasons why the prophetic hope is littered with no more war. The instruments of war are going to be getting rid of. It's the, the point of the conquest is not typical for the rest of the story. Like This is just not the way the story of Israel goes. It never became a model for how Israel was to treat the nations around it. God... Um, And Israel are never presented in the Old Testament. as constantly on the war path. Now, I'm not trying to sanitize it. I'm not trying to minimize it. It's still messy. Israel did still go in and engage in battle with Canaanite warriors at military forts. Um, and they did still destroy those people, and they did still drive the people out of their land. But we don't want to overstate it either. So we don't want to minimize it, but we also don't want to overstate it. We need to accurately understand what actually happened, and then we need to understand why it happened, right? The Canaanites were not helpless and innocent people. They were a wicked, awful culture, um, The kind of culture that practiced idolatry, the kind of uh, idolatry where they had child sacrifice, where there was ritual prostitution, they were a wicked, awful people. And that leads then to a a theological observation out of all this historical observation. And that theological observation is this, is that we've got to remember the justice of God. Um, We sometimes emphasize in our day and age God's love to such an extent that we neglect Uh, God's holiness, and we neglect God's justice. And the Bible is just far more balanced than that. God holds people accountable. Uh, Sins will be punished. People's choices are real, real choices, and they will be dignified with the consequences of their actions, and it will be a perfectly just consequence. That's what the Bible affirms. And in fact, even in the case of the wiping out of the Canaanites, this is hinted at way back before we ever get to this point in the story when we're still still dealing with Abraham several hundred years before the the uh, conquest of the Canaanites God said this to Abraham he said look uh, you're going to have lots of descendants i'm going to give you this very land where currently you're living as a nomad eventually your descendants are going to come back here and they're going to live in this land and he says something very important about that Genesis 15:16 says this in the fourth generation God speaking to Abraham, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Did you catch that? And What God seems to be saying to Abraham is the time's not right to give you this land. It's not right right now for me to drive these people from the land. It's not right right now for for me to give your your descendants this land. It's going to happen in the fourth generation. It's going to happen well down the line. Why? Because the The sin of the Amorites hasn't reached full measure. It's not fully stocked up. In other words, what God seems to be saying is it wouldn't be just yet. It wouldn't be in keeping with my justice to, to punish the Amorites, the Canaanites, by driving them out of their land just yet. It'll happen. It'll tell. The time will come, and it'll be obvious, but it hasn't happened yet. And so God is delaying his judgment on the Canaanite peoples until the time should come when their sin has reached full measure. And that's really, really important to realize is that God is a God of justice. And he holds people accountable for their actions. And it'll be perfectly just when he does so. And so the conquest of the Canaanite people was, was not genocide. It was a It was a judgment of God on a wicked people whose sins had reached its full measure, and God used the Israelites to do that. And then God warned the Israelites, and if you become like them, I'll do the same thing to you. I will hold you accountable for your action as well. And all of that then leads to a final observation, and that is just a narrative observation, that this event is part of one big, long story of redemption. It's One short chapter in the long story of the whole Bible. And the goal of that story at the outset, get this, God's promised Abraham, the goal of the story is to bless all the nations through Abraham's descendants. Particularly through the ultimate descendant, Jesus himself, who's bringing God's blessing to the world. And so... The, the whole story's intent is actually to to reverse the curse of sin and death and to bring God's blessings to the nations and that's that's what the story's all about and here we have one short chapter in that battle and in that struggle to redeem all of creation and to remove the curse and to bring God's wisdom and justice and grace and truth to the whole world and so while this this is a awful story, a tragic story in the grand story. It's just one bit of the story, one chapter in the story, um, and it's a messy bit. And the reason for that is because redemption is messy. It's messy, right? And the God of the Bible is not some ivory tower deity who sits up in heaven, you know, hands perfectly clean and, you know, sits there and corrects and critiques the mess of the world from the the confines of, you know, a white, sterile, perfectly clean heaven. That's just not the way the God of the Bible is ever portrayed. The God of the Bible is a God who gets involved in the mess. In fact, he gets his hands muddy and his sandals muddy in the mess in this battle and this struggle to rescue and redeem this world. Not only does he get them muddy, he gets his hands and his feet bloody in this battle in the person of Jesus when he comes to rescue and redeem this world and it becomes his own death on the cross in this struggle to redeem. God knows. God knows what this struggle to redeem and rescue this world is actually going to cost. And it is a long, difficult um, Journey to get to the point where God can bring the whole blessing to all the nations. And so God's redeeming work is a little bit filthy. and It's the tension that comes from trying to clean out and rescue a fallen world. In fact, my, my father-in-law, who grew up on a farm, uh, he likes to say, you can't shovel out the barn and not get a little crap on you. All right? You can't shovel out the barn and not get a little crap on you. And that's exactly what happens in the story of the Bible. God's going to shovel out the barn. He's going to clean out this world and make it beautiful again. But in the process of doing so, he's going to get a little crap on him. He's going to get a little bit messy. He's going to get a little bit filthy. He's going to get a little bit dirty. And in in the end, at the culmination of the story, he's even going to get himself whipped and beaten and a little bit bloody in this struggle to redeem. And so this command to wipe out the Canaanites, it is a difficult command. It is a, um, it is a ugly chapter in the story of redemption, but it's part of the story because God knows that mankind is not always cracked up to be, and he will hold people accountable for their actions. And so um, God executed justice on the Canaanites through the Israelites. Um, and yet, and yet as we've tried to show through all these observations is that it's, it's not as Awful is maybe sometimes the overstatement makes it seem. It's awful. It's messy. It's dirty. But let's not overstate it. Let's make sure we understand what's really going on there. This is a military battle um, that is an act of justice from God. uh, And the majority of the people are either absorbed into Israel or eventually slowly over time pushed out of the land, pushed further away. And the fact is, is because they weren't totally removed from the land, because Israel just kind of tolerated them, it got really messy for Israel. And Israel itself was eventually kicked out of the land as a punishment. And then God brought them back. And then in the, the rest of the story, God himself came. And, and God brought full redemption in the person of Jesus. That's the story. And that's the story that we're living now, even today. And so as we look at this Part of the story, we need to stand back, see the whole sweep of the story, and praise the wisdom and the justice of God and praise the mercy and the goodness of God, even in those times where we're like, man, I don't fully understand, I don't fully get it, but I trust you, God. I trust you know what you're doing because I look at Jesus on the cross and I realize your goal, your goal is to redeem, your goal is to rescue, your goal is to clean things out. And it's just messy business. Redemption is messy business. Well, I hope that at least gives uh, some context for understanding that command to wipe them out. There's an awful lot that could be said. Again, uh, you might check out those books I mentioned earlier. I have the links down in the notes below. I'll put some of the scriptures I mentioned on uh, this episode down in the notes below as well if you want to look them up yourself so you can at least read the text itself. Hopefully at least provides a little bit of context for you as you wrestle with um, this command and some of the destruction we see in the Old Testament. Hey, thanks for tuning in once again to the Bible and Life podcast. Again, my name is John Whitaker. I love sharing the, the text with you. Have a great rest of your week, and we will talk again soon.